us continue with our second lecture of eight. Jeff brought with me. <laughs> we still have quite a bit to cover, as you see. So you have to be very quiet. <laughs> Listen carefully. <laughs> you know. This through the lectures with a faster pace. Sin and grace and knowledge. This was the overall topic we had addressed before we took the break. And I told you that the thinking of non-Christians is darkened and deliberately so. They reject the truth. They know the truth, but they, re they reject, they suppress the truth. They do know because God has given each individual, each person that senses divinitatis, that, that, that understanding of divinity, but that understanding that knowledge is being suppressed as Paul so clearly tells us in the first chapter of Romans. Their minds are darkened. I just refer you to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Ephesians 4, verse 18. I referred to these verses already in the lecture at the university. And I hope I got my point across with the first part of the lecture that indeed there is no hope in human philosophy. Human thinking will lead inevitably surely into death. That's it. There's no hope. If you're on that road, we know where it will end. On the other side, light, life, fullness, eternity, forgiveness, all of that, including all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. The unbeliever, in alliance with Satan, puts up massive resistance against God's word. Paul says, the natural man, and he means the unbeliever, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. So in essence, if the natural man, the unbeliever, cannot, cannot receive God's truth as revealed in the scriptures, cannot understand them. It's foolishness to him. There is no possible way how I can make it plain to him. No possible way. It's hopeless on my side to persuade him. He cannot. He has not the facilities to understand it. Not because he is not rational, but because he misuses his rationality in opposition to that truth. Theoretically, he can accept it and think about it. It's not something which he doesn't understand intellectually. This is not the problem. The problem he is he does not want to understand it. He rejects it. He stands in opposition to it. Deliberately so. Despite the fact that he understands what it means. 
Scripture presents his resistance sometimes as a sinner's choice. Sometimes as Satan blinding him. I refer you to 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 following. But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. So there is also that satanic influence at work which indeed prevents them from seeing the light, the truth in Jesus Christ, which is revealed to us in the gospel. So we should not discount that aspect either, because it's a reality. We do not fight against what? We do not fight against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms, and so on and so forth. We should take on, put on the armor of God, and one of these weapons is the sword of the Spirit. And prayer, preaching of gospel, holding to the truth of God's word, and believing in the hope of salvation. These are our weapons. They are both offensive and defensive. The shield of faith to distinguish all the fiery darts of the devil. This is the, this is the battlefield. It's a spiritual battlefield. And believe me or not, and you know that as well as I do, even though we are not always conscious of that fact, it's a battle we will never, ever get out of, as long as we are here in this world. It's a battle which is fought every single moment of your life as a Christian. There's not one millisecond you're taken out of it. The battle happens right here, now in this moment. You're fighting against these principalities, even though we are not aware of them as such. Jesus interrupted Nicodemus, who wanted to discuss theology with him, by saying, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, verse 3. What a put-down for Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus thought he knew a lot about the kingdom of God, but he knew nothing. He could not even see. He needed the new birth. He needed the Holy Spirit. The salvation Jesus came to bring. And he needs new presuppositions. Elsewhere in scripture, we learn that redemption brings a new knowledge of God. Fallen man wants to think autonomously, subject only to his own criteria of truth, free to ignore those of God. But God's grace takes away our bondage to autonomous ways of thinking and enables us instead to think according to God's words. And I have about 10 Bible verses to prove that point. And I have all the references written here in parentheses. So it's a life of bondage, bondage to our own autonomous thinking. It's not something which really helps us. It is something which indeed destroys us. 
and we are bound to that reality of our life as long as we are living in sin. And God wants to free us from that cause of destruction. It's the dialectic at work in our thinking as I try to bring it out. No unbeliever can escape that prison of the dialectic. There's no possible way how he can escape it, regardless of what he does, regardless of what philosophy or religion he espouses. The only escape is by believing in a triune God. And a triune God is only found in Jesus Christ in Christianity. This is the only way how to get out of the dialectic. The dialectic will destroy. This is the natural dynamic of a dialectic. It will destroy. It will pull us in this direction. And the more we are in this direction, uh, moving in this direction, the stronger the other pull will become to pull us back and pull us on the other side. And we are constantly in this, this movement. And when we are in the middle, both poles, poles pull on us and try to rip us apart. This is the dialectic. And all human beings are caught in that life situation. And it's primarily in their minds, of course. And this is what destroys the families. This is what destroys the churches. This is what destroys the relationship between parents and children, between neighbors, between nations. All of that is the consequence of the dialectic at work. It's a thinking process taking part in us. This is why Paul tells us that the very first thing which happens if a person comes to faith is his thinking is being renewed. And the, the voice in the, in the Greek is passive. It's a passive voice. Being renewed. Something is done to you. Something is done to your thinking. In other words, you are taken out of the dialectic. You cannot take yourself out. You are taken out, passive. Something is happening to you. You are taken out of that destructive life principle being the dialectic into a whole new realm, the realm, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son. And this is a whole new world opening up to you, which is life-giving, fulfilling, peaceful, harmonious, and in eternity, heaven. Fallen man wants to think autonomously, subject only to his own criteria of truth, free to ignore those of God. But God's grace takes away our bondage to autonomous ways of thinking and enables us instead to think according to God's word. This was my last statement. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to know the truth. Again, I have about 10 passages here, or at least close to 10 references, which I could now quote to uh, substantiate that point. The fear of the Lord leads to knowledge and wisdom. One of the most important verses uh, in regards to our thinking processes. How do I function properly only if we fear the Lord 
And this is a presupposition. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The sources of redemptive knowledge are the word and the spirit of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the preaching of Christ. Romans 10 verse 17. It is through those special words given by the spirit. The spirit empowers the word to drive it home to our hearts. Let me put in here a footnote which is regarded in my way of thinking much more than just a footnote. It's just a little plug I want to put in here <laughs> for a specific type of preaching, which is expositional. Expositional or exegetical. I know I have a few passages in front of me. I cannot emphasize this point more to you to preach expositionally. Stay away from all the other types. Now, sometimes, once in a blue moon, I have a topical message. <laughs> but by and large, I preach expositionally. You are charged to explain the meaning of scripture as God has given it to us. Not as you think would be most helpful to your congregation as God has given it to you and to me. And he's given it to us in letters and books and poetic psalms. Exegete those and try to explain the meaning. This is your task. And then the Holy Spirit will use that word to bring new spiritual life to the people listening to you. It's very important to me to emphasize this, even though it's only a footnote according to or in, in this particular presentation. You should not conclude from this teaching that the unbeliever has no knowledge of the truth at all. It would be contradictory to what we know from Scripture, Romans 1, verses 18 to 21. We do know God, nor should we falsely conclude from the term translated repress by the NIV in verse 18, but their knowledge of God is always subconscious or unconscious. Rather, scripture often represents unbelievers, even devils or demons, being conscious of the truth and willing to affirm it for their sinful purposes, of course. What happens rather is that although they know God, they turn against him and do whatever they can to suppress the effects of the truth in themselves and in the world. Sometimes they deny it with their lips. Other times, like the Pharisees, they confess it with their lips while denying it in their hearts and actions. And I think this is often the case in the churches which you may pastor. We have a lot of people confessing to be Christians. A lot of them. Saying they worship God, they love Jesus, they read their Bibles, they come to their Bible studies, they wear every single Sunday, listen to you. Oh, I know, I don't know how many missionaries 
who are dedicated to spread the gospel as they understand it, as their lives work. And knowing them a little bit better, I have to realize, and this grieves me, that they have no understanding of the gospel whatsoever. As a matter of fact, they are enemies of the very gospel they profess to proclaim. As I gave a little illustration to Pastor Bob on the way from the airport, we had a North American missions director come to speak at our church in Germany, an international church which is quite unique. We have about 150 missionaries attending that church and 300 missionary kids and about 50 nationals. So quite a unique church. Just imagine having 150 missionaries and most of them missions directors of large missions agencies, European missions directors, <laughs> sitting in front of you and then listening to your sermon. That will be a challenge, I can guarantee <laughs> The last straw for us as a family, which led us to leave this church and go somewhere else, was the fact that on one Sunday, and I said this was the last straw. On one Sunday, we went to church as we used to do. And we listened to the music. We listened to some testimonies. And then this was done and that was done. Time went on. And I was always waiting for the sermon to come. And all of a sudden, the church, where the worship leader just walked up and said, you can go home now. There's no sermon whatsoever. When I asked, you know, where is the sermon? Sermon? We don't need a sermon at church. Why should we listen to a sermon? Didn't you have fun singing all these wonderful songs? Wasn't it uplifting enough? Why do we need to listen to a sermon? I extend a little bit on the answer I got. They didn't tell me that much, but this was the attitude. Okay, I don't want to misrepresent the situation. Or at least this is how I understood it. Okay. 150 missionaries dedicated to preach the gospel. Preach? Why preach? We don't need that. Now this was only one Sunday, okay? But this was the very last Sunday which we attended. And this was the last straw. Another instant which I intended to say, to relate, there was this missions director of Overseas Crusade. Let's just name the missions agency. Come to preach when the regular missionary pastor was in the States for a board meeting that friend of his filled in for him. And then in the middle of his, I hate to call it a sermon because it was more a pep talk. In the middle of his pep talk, he said, okay, let's get the lights off. I want to show you a movie clipping. And when he turned it on or someone turned it on for him and the noise was so horrible. And when we, we realized what kind of noise it was, it was the noise of wheels of sport cars 
spinning on the, on the asphalt and sport cars racing through the inner city of a huge American metropolis. Just race cars trying to race through these streets. And I don't know how long it lasted. It, it seemed like 10 minutes, but probably it was not 10 minutes. <laughs> probably it was much shorter. But you only heard the squealing of the wheels and hard rock music in the background. And then the very last scene after the, the race was done, you saw the race drivers, and all you saw, there was no dialogue, dialogue whatsoever. Not one word spoken. The only thing you saw was the smiles on these race drivers, how they enjoyed that experience of racing through that city. That was all. And I was turned off. The mission director came back and said, you wonder why I showed you that clipping, and indeed we wondered. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I wanted to see you this scene was because I think this is the perfect analogy of what is most important about the Christian faith. The most important, the most essential aspect of a Christian faith is the following. Did you see the smile on the face of these race drivers? Yes, we did see it. So many other things, but we did see the smile on the face of these race drivers. Now you know that they were real excited. It was such a high to race through the city. They were absolutely elated. Do you know how long it lasted? Just a few minutes. And I tell you what you get when you become a Christian. You will have the same high, the same great feelings which these race drivers had for the rest of your life. That's the most important aspect of Christianity I would like to convey to you. And then he said, well, my main ministry is I, as a European mission director of that agency, Overseas crusade. My main ministry is to teach the German pastors what to preach. My heart sunk probably to the bottom of the chair or even further down. Because I looked around and saw all the missionaries sitting around. They were taking down every single word they had heard. They were so excited about that message. They were so excited that once I wrote a little message of complaint to the pastor coming back from the States, telling him that I didn't find any Christian substance whatsoever in that message or pep talk, he said, well, he got so many affirming emails from the missionary community. They were so excited about that message that he decided to invite the very same mission director again on the following Sunday to continue that wonderful message. And the second part was worse than the first part, even though this is perhaps a bit difficult to imagine, but it can get worse than the first part. But it was worse. And when I decided, since I didn't get through, I, my wavelengths were a bit different from the wavelengths of that pastor. 
So I thought, well, I'm not getting through with my wavelengths, so I, I try a different approach. I asked the secretary to give me a copy of that second part on, on a CD. And I mailed that CD to some well-known theology professors here in the States whom I know personally, like David F. Wells, Michael Horton, um, John Wittkamp, and some of the others. Trevor Gregan at the Master Seminary. With a simple question, please analyze that message preached by a missions director to 150 missionaries, 300 missionary children, and a bunch of nationals. And then give me your assessment. Only one didn't respond. All the others responded. Every single, and I didn't know that I sent it to some of the other professors. I only told them that they are the professor assessing that. Every single response I got back was identical to what I personally thought about it. Trevor Gagan from a master seminary, he's the systematic theology professor at the master seminary, said that he got so disgusted listening to that that he couldn't bear it any longer. In the middle of the whole thing, he had to turn it off. David F. Wells sent me a longer message. Gist of it was, he said that the only Christian aspects of that entire message were the two Bible verses quoted at the beginning. That was it. Everything else belonged into a different category than Christianity. Just think about it. They dedicated their lives to spread the gospel and have no idea about it whatsoever. I'm not saying it about everyone. Okay, we have some dear friends who are missionaries and who are as dedicated and, and as true to the Bible as they can. And we love them and and but it, it is a very different world out there. And it really grieves us. And my wife said uh, we cannot attend the church anymore. Because every single Sunday when we drive home from church, I'm in a bad mood. And our children have picked it up. They already make jokes about it. Now we are driving back from church again. Now look at daddy. <laughs> See his red face? He's trembling, shaking. Oh. So the children have picked up on that particular aspect of my perhaps sinful behavior, but it had a reason. And my wife said, this is the wrong message we are communicating to our children. And it was the wrong message. We have to find another church. There's just no other way. And when I told you the last straw, when we didn't hear any sermon whatsoever, now this may have been a saving grace, not considering what they <laughs> heard when it was preached from a book. You get the point. <laughs> okay. Nor should we conclude that God's grace prevents the believers from any rebellion against the truth. But grace 
does is break the dominion of sin. What grace does is to break the dominion of sin. Romans 6 verse 14. It does not banish the presence of sin until the final day. For the present believers still sin, and therefore they turn against God's word. But by redemption we have the means to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3 verse 18. Apologetic implications. And as I promised, I would pick up some of the themes we already have shortly mentioned and talked about. So my first point is against no neutrality. Uh, excuse me, not against, again, again, no neutrality. These biblical teachings reinforce the metaphor of the paranoid, which I discussed earlier. The unbeliever, like the paranoid, has a false worldview which he is trying with all his might to promulgate and defend. Yet he is not ignorant of the truth. As in the illustration, he hoped, we hoped that the paranoid might be at some level of his conscience be in touch with reality. No, uh, be in touch with reality. So scripture assures us that the unbeliever is in touch with reality. He knows God, though he seeks to repress that knowledge. There is something enormously irrational about the unbeliever's whole enterprise. Think back of the lecture. I always said the rationalist is also at the very same time an irrationalist. And the irrationalist is also at the very same time a rationalist. One cannot be separated from the other. There are only times when he shows more his rational face, and at other times he shows more his irrational face, but the two are linked together. They are never being separated. And the best illustration is that Roman God, Janus, who is always portrayed with two faces facing in opposite directions, but linked together. So one face looks in this direction, the other face in that direction, but they are one and the same. Janus. Unless Janus' face means someone believes that and also believes the opposite. And this is the situa situation of every unbeliever you encounter. He is a Janus-faced individual. He may not consciously realize this about himself, but this is reality about him which you know far better than he himself knows. Now, in a sense, we are also honest faced, since we are still sinful. This is what sin does. We believe mutually exclusive claims. But obviously, God is at work in our mind and heart and changes us. Whereas the unbeliever lives in a confused world. This is why it's so absurd to him. Think about the existentialists. Think about Sisyphus, Albert Camus, that myth of Sisyphus, which was brought out in that book by Albert Camus, where Sisyphus is condemned by the gods to roll up that stone up a hill, 
when he comes when he reaches the top and stone rolls down again so he has to go down again roll the stone up once he gets up to the top roll, the stone rolls down again so it's Sisyphus this is what I tell my wife this is her job and she has to wash my clothes <laughs> Sisyphus so she knows that that term quite well now <laughs> Anyway, I'm going on a tangent. <laughs> and she's a wonderful wife, and I'm glad she does it. So every unbeliever lives in a confused world. It's like mental illness. So the picture of a paranoid person is not too far off as a matter of fact. And why is it not so far off? Well, let's contemplate the following statements. Like Satan, he knows God, yet he disowns him. Was that a reaction which is totally irrational? He knows that his actions deserve death. I mean, the unbeliever knows that. Yet he does it anyway. He knows that the rebellion against God is doomed. Yet he rebels anyway. There's a graciousness about sin, isn't it? We do, as Paul said, we do what we do not want to do. And still do it. In saying that I do... Excuse me, in saying that I do not at all mean to reduce the unbeliever's responsibility as might be suggested by the modern medical model of mental illness. Now he's mentally ill. It's not his fault. No, he is responsible for what he does and, and chooses to do. Graciousness is chosen. It's deliberate. It is the unbeliever's responsibility. He would rather live in a dream world a word of his own creation when to acknowledge God as the Lord. I think this is behind all the grace of watching fantasy movies or being engaged in a virtual reality kind of experience. We want to escape our own reality. We want to escape time and limit the limits of our creatureliness and behind all of that is escaping the reality of ultimate, final, and absolutely assured judgment. Therefore, he contends against reality as apologists. We must seek to bring him back. We must show him the way to reality. He has to face the ugliness of himself. This is what the Bible does, doesn't it? Someone said, the Bible is like a mirror. You hold it in front of your face, and you look into it, and you see your own ugly face. With all its imperfections, with all its warts, with all the pimples, the whole gamut, the whole shebang. 
of the evil of the evil and ugly face you see in that mirror. This is what the Bible does. This reality. We much rather live in a fantasy world where everything is perfect and certainly I'm absolutely perfect and good, well behaved and so on and so forth. No, our test is to show them how things really are. This is a very difficult task of a pastor. This is perhaps the most difficult task of a pastor to tell the people in front of him that they are sinners, deserving eternal damnation. This is why it's much easier to to speak about the the five principles of how to raise your children successfully. This is much more pleasant easier to preach on than to say you are a sinner bound to be eternally condemned. Or as Jonathan Edwards so eloquently said, sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is your message, nothing else. Preach that message. There is no gospel if you don't tell them the negative side of it. There is no light if you don't talk about the darkness. And this is absolutely shined in our seeker-friendly churches today. This is why the seeker-friendly movement is so detrimental, so deadly, because it only shows the blessing things of life, the affirming things, Now we have the most affirming message we possibly can. The eternal gospel which frees us from our sins, which helps us to live a God-fearing life, which leads us into heaven, which helps us to glorify God. This is the most affirming message we possibly can preach. But that sermon can only be understood if we tell the people that there is sin, death, destruction, darkness, eternal damnation. Otherwise, they will not appreciate what you tell them about the gospel. They will not be able to worship God with the fullness of their hearts if they don't understand from what kind of state they were saved from and what they enjoy now as, as Christians. But great privileges, and all of it by grace, not because you deserved it. Okay. It seems like I'm preaching right now. Again, the apologist must not adopt the unbeliever's standards. How can we accept his craziness? How can we rescue him from quicksand if we are caught up in it too? His standards indeed are themselves sin. To accept them would be to renounce the Lordship of Christ. Nor do we dare to seek neutrality. There is none. Paul asks, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 following. We are either for Christ or against him. No one is unbiased. Matthew 12, verse 30. 
Through history of apologetics, it has been common for Christians to claim some kind of neutral ground, some criteria or standard that both believers and unbelievers can accept without compromising their system. There are, of course, usually some propositions that both believers and unbelievers can agree on. And those kinds of agreements are apologetically useful. Indeed, as we indicated earlier, some unbelievers, like the devils, may even confess that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. But we mislead the unbeliever if we tell him that we are using the same standards of truth, rationality, and knowledge as he. To tell him that is misleading even if he is willing to do lip service to scriptural standards. For his grand passion, his basic commitment is to attack and undermine the truth as the Christian understands it. I hope you understood that, what I'm trying to communicate here. Our standards of truth and logic and rationality are totally different from the standards of an unbeliever. Even though he may verbally agree with us, the basis from what he proceeds is totally different than the basis I'm standing on. And we should not affirm his wrong basis. This is in and of itself sin on our part, as much as it is sin on his part. Okay, this was my first point. Let me again say there's no neutrality. My second point, the unbelievers need. From a biblical evidence, we can expect that the unbelievers to whom we witness both know God and seek to suppress the truth. The primary need is not to know that God exists. We don't need to prove the existence of God. This is something we do not need to do. This is something which God has already put in the heart of every human being. So why do something which already has happened? The primary need is not to know that God exists, although various kinds of argumentation may be used to remind them that they know that. Positively, what does the unbeliever need? And here I have several points. He needs, and I hope you will give the right answer to that. He needs, and I put that dot, dot, dot. He needs what? From all I said up till now, you should be able, without even thinking about it, you should be able to give me the right answer. He needs... The word of God. That's his greatest need. He doesn't need to know about the existence. He know about the existence of God. He knows that already. Now we need we could stir up that knowledge a little bit since he tries to put, uh, repress it. But his Allah, his his first need is the word of God. Some students came to me after the lecture and asked me certain questions. How can we witness to that and that if they have these objections to the Christian faith? And you can fill in the blanks. It doesn't really matter. There are multiple reasons why people reject the Christian faith. How can we witness to them? 
What should we do? How should we combat these arguments where you present against the Christian faith? I said, well, well, if we harp on evolution theory against creation, we have wonderful books you can give them. Or you can read these books and then give them the arguments. It's certainly legitimate and maybe helpful. But what do they really need? They need encounter with a living God. And where do they find the living God? Where do they encounter the power of that living God? In the Word of God. So what do they really need? They need the Word of God. And I told them, well, the best thing you can do is remind them or encourage them, motivate them to read one of the Gospels or really any other portion. They can read Genesis. I started reading Genesis up to Revelation and when I came to 2 Corinthians 5, God intervened in my life and spoke to my heart and said, I'm a sinner. I'm deserving death and condemnation. So you never know what God uses, which portion of scripture he uses in your life. Well, I got that, liberal, that book about liberal theology from the library and the professor did his uttermost best to disprove every single miracle in the Bible. Theology professor in Germany. But the, the author or the publisher put Bible verses in, in the margins of every single page. And I stopped reading the text and I just focused on these Bible verses. <laughs> and these Bible verses spoke to me, especially one, Isaiah 43. You are mine. I have called you by name. You are mine. Amen. I said, I'm listening, yes. I'm ready. Thank you, Lord. We need the word of God. The word is what brings faith. I'm not saying that the apologists should merely read scripture to the unbeliever, though there is surely a place for that. The important thing is that he presents the authentic message of the gospel without compromise. He should not pretty it up as is, as is so often done. Sin must be presented in all its ugliness, the supernatural in all its offensiveness to modern man, the cross as a blood sacrifice, faith as a matter of life and death, the lordship of Christ as all, uh, with all its intrusive demands. All of that, of course, alongside the joyful good news promises of God. In presenting the words, we must apply it to the unbelievers' situation. Different unbelievers have different sorts of problems with Christianity. The existence of God, the problem of evil, the ethical demands of scripture, or whatever. We must be prepared to deal with those as they appear, giving scriptural answers. We must be prepared to deal, excuse me, I just said that, by scriptural answers, I don't mean necessarily answers that are explicitly found on the pages of Scripture. To apply Scripture to present-day situations, we must know something about the present-day situations. Indeed, we may generalize. To apply Scripture, we must have some extra Scriptural knowledge. 
a scriptural answer to the problems of nuclear weapons must include some knowledge about such weapons. Now let me explain this a little bit further, which may sound a bit strange, having said what I have said up until now. That we live in a world which is very complex. Only knowing your Bible will not really get you very far. You need to know quite a lot of other things beyond the Bible. Now, by God's providence, I didn't choose it really. By God's providence, he put me into a line of work to think the in and the out about the ethics of clinical nanomedicine. Once that head physician approached me with a proposition, do you want to be involved in researching these questions? Yes or no? If you do, I will hire you. I honestly told him, and this goes back to the year 2004, I honestly told him that the very first time I've heard the term nanotechnology mentioned was just a few seconds ago, which came out of his own mouth. It was the very first time, honestly, I've heard the term nanotechnology. I had not the slightest understanding of what it is, except technology. <laughs> I didn't even know what nano meant, although I should have known, because it's a Greek word, means dwarf. So something very, very small. So I should have known, but I didn't know. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Again, this was 2004. Don't worry about it. Hardly anyone in the world knows anything about it. So you're in good company. <laughs> Just come to my house in the afternoon, and I will show you as much as you need to know initially. And then you can make up your mind if you want to take up that um, job or not. So I went to his home, and he did in, indeed show me. He had a wonderful PowerPoint presentation, with a neatly um, scripted outline. Just kidding. <laughs> Just an inside joke back there. <laughs> it's helpful. It was very helpful, I have to admit. And I said, I'll take the job. That sounds real interesting. The real reason was I needed a job. And I, I didn't care if it was nanotechnology or anything else. I needed a job. <laughs> but then, obviously, I started, or I had to read quite a bit of you know, articles and books and whatever. As a matter of fact, when I fly back home, home meaning North Carolina, I have to write a scientific article for the next publication of a journal of clinical nanomedicine. So I have to shift totally from what I'm presenting here. And yet, not really. Because I will use that article in that scientific journal, and I'm uh, the editor of, this, of the journal, so another job I have. I'll use it as my preaching platform to the scientific community. So all of what I teach to you here, I immediately apply in some ways. And that journal goes out in all the world. So you can pray for that too, because I'm not quite sure right now what I'm going to write down on the table. It's a challenge. But 
somehow it will come upon. <laughs> yes. Probably about three minutes we'll want to go to a Q&A time. That's so good, yes. Okay. So what does he need? He needs the word of God. So if I can leave you with this thought, I have accomplished quite a bit. You may have expected me to say something else, now get involved in a academic group where we discuss the different philosophies of Kant, of Hume. This may be helpful. I read a lot of philosophy books and books about the history of economics. Another hobby of mine. I have a whole shelf full of those books. And it's, it's a great read. I mean, it's not for everyone, but I really enjoy reading up on the history of economics. But it helps me tremendously just to speak with anyone who is involved in or interested in economics. All of a sudden, he, he, he realizes that I have a bit of a background, even though I'm kind of strange. He's teaching Bible. But thankfully, he knows also about economics. And so we can we can discuss some of these aspects. And well, let me just finish with one story. Since I still have two minutes and 50 seconds. <laughs> I was a high school graduate and wanted to become a missionary. And I realized in order to become a German missionary, I had to be able to speak English fluently. And English was the worst subject when I was at high school. It was a torture. I had a special tutor helping me to get on with English. And every week when I left that particular tutor, she was an older lady, I was drenched in sweat. It was a torture. And I'm not exaggerating. It was torture. So I threw out English. And when I told the details, I don't need to repeat them. I realized I had to be able to speak English fluently. So I said, I'm not making it at a school. And most of the missions candidates went to England for um, just to study English. I'm not making it at a school. I need to be exposed to English and forced to speak. My better approach is to come to the States and, and just work at a church and be forced to speak. So this is what I did. Some missionary, American missionary friends made the connection to their home church in Columbus, Ohio. And on one wonderful day, I arrived in Columbus. And the pastor said, well, we really don't know what to do with you. You can't speak English. You don't have any Bible training. You're just a brand new Christian. Now, we have cleaning ladies. So we have already covered that aspect of church ministry. <laughs> we don't really know what to do with you. Do you have some ideas? I said, no, not really. And when all of a sudden the missions director or missions pastor said, I have an idea. We have a huge university just in the neighborhood here, Ohio State University, 60,000 students. 
just go there and see what you can do. He didn't give me any, any idea what I can do, but just go there and, and just open your eyes and see perhaps you can do something. Which can right, further the kingdom of God. So I, I latched on to a, a student who attended my church and said, do you have some ideas what I can do? I've, I've never in my whole life been on a university campus. And then obviously going to Ohio State University with 60,000 students their own fire department, their own police station, over 300 buildings. I was lost among the vastness of that experience and not being able to speak English. So he said, well, I have to study German. Maybe this may be an avenue for you. I'll take you to my German class. So he took me to his German class. I was sitting in the back row. The professor came in. The very first thing she saw, she saw me and asked me, what are you doing here? I said, well, uh, I really don't know, <laughs> but what I want to do is I want to sit here and I want to listen to you. <laughs> whatever, I, whatever popped in my mind, I said. <laughs> she said, come out. I have to speak with you privately. So she gave a test to the students and took me out of a classroom and we stood in the foyer, foyer outside and the first thing she asked, where are you from? I said, I'm from Germany. I was born in Marbach am Neckar. And then she looked at me, Marbach am Neckar. This is where I wrote my PhD thesis. And you have to understand, Marbach am Neckar is a provincial town somewhere in Germany 12,000 people. There's nothing to that town except one fact, that one of the most famous German poets was born in that town. So they have a huge museum, Friedrich Schiller, huge, huge Friedrich Schiller Museum, and the largest library containing all the German literature you can think of. So if someone writes a PhD thesis, about some German literature, there's a good chance that they end up or at least come through my hometown. So she wrote her PhD thesis in my hometown. And from one second to the next, from being extremely critical and, and suspicious and whatever, she was as friendly as friendly can get. She said, is Marbach am Neckar still such a boring town with no nightlife? As it used to be when I was writing my PhD thesis, still is, yes. <laughs> no bars. <laughs> I always had to go to Stuttgart. That's a big city. <laughs> to have a nightlife. Okay. And then one, led, one thing led to the next. And then they told me they have a radio station and would like to invite me to interview me about Friedrich Schiller. Three interviews. I said, yes, I'm willing. I'm from Abach Neckar. Attended Friedrich Schiller High School. Yes, I'm the expert. <laughs> you should know how badly I did reading these poems. But I was interviewed about British Schiller. So the first interview of these three 
started out with a question. Where are you from? I'm from Marbachenecker. Oh, is this the Marbachenecker where Friedrich Schiller was born? Yes, this is the very town. Can you tell us a little bit about Friedrich Schiller? I said, yes, yeah, sure I can. I attended Friedrich Schiller <laughs> High School. <laughs> we have a huge museum about him. Uh, lots of books in a very huge library in my hometown. But guess what? I'm not really the expert about Friedrich Schiller. Yes, we had to study his works. Every November we had to throw our bouquets on his birthday at the place where he had a big statue, listening to his poems, yes. But I'm not really the expert about Friedrich Schiller. But I do know one subject which I know extremely well. This is the Bible. <laughs> and that professor said, the Bible, explain me the gospel. <laughs> How can I get saved? So, for three interviews, <laughs> each 15 minutes or 45 minutes in total, I tried to explain the gospel as best as I could in German because there's a large German population in Columbus, Ohio, and it was the German radio station for the German for the students who studied German, but also for the larger German-speaking community in Columbus, Ohio. The center of Columbus is called Germantown. So as best as I could, in German, I was able to explain the gospel over the airwaves. And then later on, I met with the American students. I, I presented myself as a conversation partner to the American students who were studying German. So we spoke German with each other. And then we students said, I think I heard you speak on the radio. That was kind of an interesting subject you just addressed, about the Bible and gospel and so on and so forth. Can you explain this a little bit further? Yes, I will. <laughs> what do I need? Word of God. I read the word of God. And now we can have the question and answer time. So do you have questions? Yes. Uh, what's the difference between that and what Paul did with the Greeks with the unknown? Yeah, I didn't do compromise, of course. Where do you see any compromise? He preached Jesus Christ being the judge, Jesus Christ who, resu- who was resurrected. He preached to them what they, in their ignorance, worship the true God. He didn't compromise whatsoever. He used that particular uh, idol as a jumping board, like I used Friedrich Schiller, to go straight into the gospel. There's no compromise whatsoever. Yes? That's, that's a challenge. 
I encountered these situations too. And it, it is a challenge. And it, there is no pet answer I can give you because every single situation is a bit different. But as I said, with the example I, main, I shared with you, an illustration about the paranoid person, he has also very wrong and false conceptions. You just tell them the truth and try to bring them back to reality, to what you have known to be the truth in Christ. That's the only thing we can do, really. And then we do hope and pray that that person responds to what you say. But obviously there's no guarantee. And, and again, it's not re your responsibility. You don't need to put a guilt trip on yourself for not being able to be more persuasive or, not, or trying to really uh, bring him back as such. You just trust God that he does his work, that he uses his word, and we do have a promise that his word will accomplish the purpose for, what, for which it is sent, Isaiah 55. So the power is in the word. The power is God himself. Now, yes, there are situations where you really have to understand where this person comes from. Like I was asked about the Seventh-day Adventists. We had landlords who were Seventh-day Adventists. And they always tried to convert us to what they believed. And I can tell you it was, it was impossible to really talk with them. It was just impossible. We had some hopes initially, but they didn't get anywhere. So, yeah, we gave up, as a matter of fact, because we are limited. There are certain limitations. And they were so militant in regards to what they themselves believed and always gave us tracts and books and whatever. We just didn't see any chance to to really communicate what we believed. They were not open at all. Now you just have to accept that. It's painful. You just have to accept it. God will work in their lives and use maybe someone else later on. Who knows? Uh, we just give it back to the Lord. And we pray for them, of course. We have other means uh, besides just speaking with them personally. Now there are also situations where I was more successful in a, on a human level to be more persuasive. But to be honest, I have been a Christian from since I'm 18. I'm 46 now. I have not experienced one conversion, one conversion. And I've been businessing almost every day. Not one person committed his life as far as I know, consciously. Now, they may have after they left or whatever, but I don't know about it. And I'm witnessing constantly. It's, as a matter of fact, I just prayed a few days ago <coughs> that this would be nice <laughs> to experience this at least once. It would be nice, it would be encouragement, but I leave it up to the Lord. And obviously I know I'm not the one converting anyone. It would be a, a nice encouragement, but I have not experienced it. Well, 
there are some, some limitations, but we do our best and we trust the Lord. Francis Schaeffer um, talked about exposing the unbeliever to his um, um, false presupposition. He yes. called it tearing the roof off. Yes. And um, but you know the very expression tearing the roof off sounds very hostile. <laughs> and I know for myself um, that sometimes I want to avoid the pain of um, confrontation of the confrontation, yes. yeah. And uh, I just, uh, you know, I want the, to find the balance there um, of being able to expose them to the truth and to show them that they're what they're believing is false. Yes. But um, the it, it requires at times going further or harder in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Than, than what my comfort zone yes. wants me to use. <laughs> I'm not afraid or uncomfortable talking about um, the gospel of Christ, yes. but sometimes it um, it is difficult to expose to them either that what you think you're a Christian but you're not, yes. or your uh, what you do believe is absolute falsehood. Yes. And I just wonder if you would address that. The, the, the pain of that encounter yes. that sometimes makes us um, lose courage or yes. lose heart. Yes, well, we should not shy away from confrontation. Even though it's painful, I'm very well aware of that fact. But you have to be faithful, regardless of consequences. And I went into situations where I was trembling. I was afraid of what would happen. One example, at the University of South Carolina, I was scheduled to give a public lecture to the science community which was assembled there. speaking about nanomedicine or nanotechnology. And my thesis was the philosophy behind nanomedicine or nanotechnology in general is alchemy, of what we understand today to be esoteric or occultic of a devil. And I knew there was one friend sitting in the in the auditorium, I knew he was a Christian. But I didn't know any others. And my perception was none of them are Christians. And part of my presentation was to lead from alchemy into Christianity. So I was not really comfortable <laughs> in that situation, as you can imagine, because most of these people were seasoned, seasoned scientists. And I, I've perceived myself to be the youngest of the crowd. But I still did it. And at the end of my presentation, the whole auditorium clapped. So the very opposite reaction which I had feared would happen, did actually happen. In essence, they affirmed what I just had said. And just think about, or 
when I thought about what I had just said, <laughs> the natural reaction would be, get his head off. And it didn't happen. They were clapping. Now, I don't know how much they really understood what I said. I don't know really what happened with these scientists when they reflected upon what I said. I hope the Spirit of God illuminated some hearts. But you, ultimately, you don't know what happens. You may fear a certain situation of other confrontation and then the opposite happens and people come to Christ. So the essence of it is we leave it up to the Lord. We don't shy away from it. We want to be obedient and faithful even though if we feel uncomfortable. But we want to be faithful. And as, as I said you personally before the lecture on Thursday there are some parts in the second part of the lecture which may ruffle some feathers. Do you remember that? And I still said it. And some positive responses came back. I didn't see any rotten eggs flying through the air. Maybe you saw it, but I didn't see it. I still said it. We need to be faithful and leave it up to God and give glory to him in whatever he chooses to do. Yes. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own initiative. Yes. And I say to people, you know, if you're really seeking the truth, I encourage you to, to based upon this verse, to pray a prayer. Yes, absolutely. Say, God, if you, Jesus, if you are who this person who I say, yes. you know, uh, he is, then I want you to reveal that to me. And I'm yes. willing to do whatever. Yes. And then I said, then I just encourage them to read the book of John, especially. Yes. One I use the most. Yes. But if somebody is really looking for the truth, God is not wanting to hide it from them. Absolutely. He really wants them to know it. And yes. I think sometimes people, you know, they can pray a, a, what would seem like a, a dumb prayer because they don't even know who they're praying to. Yes. God hears that prayer if yes. their heart is to do the will. Absolutely. Uh, Yes. Well, I don't know where to begin. If I start in Genesis, by the yes. time I get to Leviticus, it's really lost. Yes. <laughs> we've got to get them pointed in the direction. Yes. So I always use the book of John. Yes, this is an excellent it idea. It talks about Jesus, you know, Jesus talks yes. about who he is. And, um, and if they're searching, I think there's a, as good a chance of any that they, uh, the word will begin to become alive. Yes, them, absolutely. They look at it. Yes. But, Christianity is all about Jesus. Do you know what I ask people? Do you know 
who Jesus said he was. Now, yes. What do you think? Who do you think Jesus was? Yes. And now he was a great teacher. <laughs> he said good things. I said, well, <laughs> no, he said about himself. Yes. He said he was God. Yes. I said, and then, what do you think about that? Oh, no, no, mm. he couldn't have been God. Yes. He's probably a good person. And then I used C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic. Yeah, lunatic. That's correct. Yes. You know, why don't I want to challenge you to look at Christianity and really study it for yourself so yes. you can come away and say, I studied it, I found it to be false, and so therefore I can go on and on. Yes. And um, I, just, I think, you know, some people take that challenge and other people don't. Yes. And those that do, you know, if they really are seeking the truth, they'll find the truth. Yes. But if they're, if they're not, if they're just, they like intellectual discussion, then like you say, you know, you're, you're um, you know, you give it a, a reason for the hope that's in you, yes. but the Holy Spirit needs to be the one that really that's right. touches your heart. That's right. Yes, I can only affirm what you just said. And this is what I personally did on many occasions. Yeah. Especially at OISD University. Yes. Yes. Um, but you're, you're not certain. Like, they don't really articulate um, their faith, and you don't really want to move on into uh, out and out discipleship if you're not certain that they're, that they're saved. Is yes. it okay just to move on and progress, or no, I wouldn't. come back and, and challenge them again? Yeah. Like, we have that? all the time in the world. We don't need to pressure anyone into anything. Yeah, or to, but you need to be certain mm-hmm. if he is a Christian, if you want to disable him. Because if he's not a Christian, they will not understand anything. It's foolish, foolishness to them. Yeah, discipleship is only for Christians. And before they become Christians, you need to witness to them and expose them to the world. But don't think that you have to pressure him into a false profession. This is what the Holy Spirit does in his heart. Whenever the Holy Spirit wants to do it. And I said, I grew up in a Christian home. I was exposed to the gospel from infancy until I was 18. I didn't understand the thing. I, I played trumpet in the church every, almost every Sunday. Lutheran church. I went out to play trumpet at huge tent evangelistic meetings. I heard the gospel presentation I don't know how many times. I went to these conferences with my parents where we heard three sermons each an hour in the morning. And I was wrong. I only heard, we only heard one sermon in the afternoon and then one hour of prayer meeting. So four hours of four different preachers on one Sunday. I heard it over and over and over again. I didn't understand a thing until I was 18 and I read that horrible book by that liberal theology professor and read these Bible verses and all of a sudden God touched my heart. 
and my parents and my relatives thought of me to be the worst pagan around. They did not believe me when I said I am converted. They did not believe me. <laughs> 